and I started to you know observe things from a different perspective. Right, I tried to shed my former bias, and I was working on some projects at the time that you know were very beneficial to the company as a whole and very beneficial to the team. But I was one dude working on them, and I realized really quickly when I realigned the priorities for my vision that it meant that I was able to accomplish the things that I couldn't accomplish alone. Right, and that management wasn't about delegation necessarily, but more about collaboration, vision, execution, you know, performing the unperformable. Right, and it, it didn't mean that I had to become rusty technically.、Um, that's certainly a path that a lot of leaders go, but that I could focus on areas that I wanted to focus on and delegate to people who wanted to focus on the, the disjoint set of things that I didn't want to do. So I was really apprehensive, and when I started it,、uh, I loved it, and it just kind of took off from there. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of Infosec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. I am here today with Jack Rorig, the CISO of Turnitin, an academic integrity company. Jack has worn many hats throughout his career, including chief information security officer, textbook dealer, VP of operations, and beauty school dropout. He currently manages both operations as well as security for Turnitin. He holds two computer science degrees and two liberal arts degrees from UC Davis and Diablo Valley College. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. I met Jack just a couple of weeks ago at Cobalt's customer advisory board meeting.、Um, Jack, I imagine that as a CISO, you have a lot of different things to do with your time. Why do you choose to attend vendor customer advisory board meetings? That's a great question. I, I actually do a lot of other stuff with vendors too. I meet frequently with PE firms, and I,、uh, I formally advise some companies. But customer advisory boards are cool because we get to. Influence the direction of companies in our favor, and it also keeps me a bit sharp. So in, in, in my career right now, I'm kind of leading very strategically, and I have to stay on top of what the emerging technology is, and meet with other CISOs and determine what their problems are and their opportunities, because otherwise I'll get rusty. Cool, cool. So Jack, you are not, as I understand it, always a high-ranking executive focused on strategy. I would love to learn about you as a young person. Who is young Jack Rorig? What were you thinking about as you were considering what to study and what to do with your work and your career? It's a it's a really weird experience that I've had growing up because I've always been I've always known what I wanted to do. You know, from when I was like eleven or twelve years old, I've always said I'm just going to you know work in computers in some way. And back then, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity, so it wasn't a very lucrative career field. It was more of a niche thing.、Um, it, it manifested when I was in high school. The dot com boom kind of started happening, and I didn't want to miss the wave, so I left school and I started working full time. And、uh, it, it was a good fit. I liked it, but I,、uh, you know, the bubble burst, and I didn't think it would come back, and so I started exploring other opportunities. So, Jack, you say that you kind of always knew what you wanted to do, and you knew that that was going to have to do with computers. It sounds like growing up, you had a computer in the household. 
Um, what are your parents like and what was their influence like on you uh, as a young person and in determining what would later become your career? It's, it's a weird situation. Yeah, we had an IBM 8088 PC with a mechanical keyboard that I wish I had held on to. I had it for a long time, but I threw it away before the popularity rose again for those keyboards. I missed that thing. But um, I, I was always, you know, I was kind of a, a recluse when I was a kid, and I spent a lot of time in front of the computer trying to figure out how it worked. I learned some quick basic programming for MS-DOS back then and uh, was playing silly video games and stuff that required uh, boot floppies. So I was doing some work with the master boot records of these floppies for a while and trying to learn how that worked. Uh, the reason we had a computer is because my mom, I don't remember exactly why she bought it. She bought it in 1981. It was very expensive back then. It didn't have a hard disk originally, and we had to install one. It was a 10 megabyte uh, dual five and a quarter format hard disk. But she later became a home ec teacher at the local Catholic school. And part of home ec was teaching quick basic programming. So she, she's always kind of been in computers herself. She's a very uh, interesting person because she doesn't identify as a techie at all. But if I have IT help or if I need like recommendations for a Wi-Fi router or for a, a surveillance camera or something like that, I go to her. I have so many tech contacts all over the place, but if I want a really solid recommendation, I ask my mom, which is bizarre. Sometimes when she calls me up and asks me for IT help, which happens to every person in the IT industry, I kind of turn around to her and go, uh, you're the person that I would ask if I had that question. So she's she doesn't really identify, she doesn't recognize the talent that she has, but she definitely has it. And I think that probably influenced me quite a bit. Uh, I think she might have had that computer for a hobby, actually, originally. That's so cool. I bet your mom is so proud of you. Jack, I want to I want to learn a little bit more about you in 2001. The dot com bubble has burst and and what were you thinking and how did you go from there? Also, this was it's such a bizarre turn of events. I was working for a tween magazine, I think around 2000 or 99 called oz.com and then the the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act or whatever it's called COPPA. That came out and it crushed their business model. Uh, so that company started to, to downward spiral. And I went and got a job over at Silicon Valley College, which is like, uh, I think it's a DeVry or a Heald owned thing. And on the first day of the job, I was going to be their sysadmin. On the first day, they, one of their teachers quit and they asked me if I, if I could teach a Unix course or a Linux course. And I said, I, I don't have teaching credentials. I'm like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll take care of that. I'm like, I don't have a, a high school diploma. <laughs> They're like, don't worry about it. So I ended up doing a little bit of that, some seminar teaching, and was their sysadmin. It was horrible. And then that when that job evaporated and, and everybody was out of work, I just assumed that that was the end of the you know most awesome time of my life because I was like 18 or 19. And so I started working at a, a cosmetic store, a, a salon. My girlfriend was working there at the time, and I, I was hanging out. And I found myself talking to customers about products. And so they, they offered me a job there. And I'm like, this industry is totally recession-proof. I'm going to go to beauty school. I'll, I'll make a killing cutting hair. So I enrolled in beauty school, uh, which I don't recommend anybody do. Uh, it's not really a school. I get to the, the school, and they just put a pair of scissors in your hand and a doll's head, and everybody knows what they're doing. And I'm like, well, you know, where's the learning part? <laughs> right? So... <laughs> I failed miserably. I could, I've never been able to pick up. Uh, I mean, I could do the manicures okay. I could do the three-stroke polish. 
And the esthetician stuff, you know, there's a lot of chemistry in that. I was, I'm kind of a chemistry geek, so I could pick that up okay. I did, uh, did uh, damage the skin of one of the women at the school's eyebrows when I waxed her, so I'm guessing not that good. But, um, I had, I eventually had to drop out of beauty school, I think after about two months, because it was the most difficult thing I've ever tried to do. <laughs> Jack, you've been in InfoSec, quote unquote, forever. Um, I think the last time you and I chatted, you actually may have showed me your first DEF CON badge from like 20 years ago. Um, talk to me a little bit about the information security conference scene at that point in time. Yeah, so this was, I think it was actually like 25 years ago. Um, I was very young and I ran a hacking group called the National Elite Underground Alliance. Uh, my buddy over in the Netherlands, his the handle was Dphaser. He and I started the thing and we recruited various folks from around the world. And he flew in. My parents let this, he was like 25. My parents let this 25 year old from the Netherlands fly in when I was like 15 or something. Uh, and that was the first time he flew in. And then we flew in the second time and we decided to go to DEF CON. And so we, you know, got some of the members of the hacking group to meet us at DEF CON in Las Vegas. It was at the Alexis Park Hotel at the time. I remember I had a uh, Linux teacher at uh, the community college who I knew, who gave me a big box of CDs, like Linux distributions, BSD distributions, huge box. And we took that with us to DEF CON, and we were throwing them on the roofs and in the pool and everything, and people were diving in the pool to get, you know, free software. And one of the guys that was there was uh, David Holton and his friend uh, Ben, uh, I can't remember his name, but the handles are Hikari and Scalor. And they, they were very young, and this was their first conference, and they freaking loved it. They had a blast. It was Hikari's birthday, and so we threw him all over our party in the hotel room. Um, <laughs> I can't really get into those details, but you can imagine. And so he went back to San Diego, he and Ben, and they said, this is, that was the coolest shit ever. We should, we should do this ourselves. Like, why don't, why aren't we doing this? And these guys are scrappy as hell. They went to the local school, I think, and they, or, or one of the, maybe it's the Marriott, but they got some event space. They promoted it and they founded TourCon. And I've been to a ton of conferences, uh, you know, security and, and otherwise in my lifetime. And TourCon was by far the coolest that I had ever been to. Um, I went there for the 20 year anniversary recently to reconnect with some of the dudes from Mia. And they also formed Tour Camp. And David Holton is just a, an amazing dude, a very interesting guy. He does the TourCon stuff for fun. I don't really know what he does. Maybe he's a spy or something, but. I think he's, I think he retired at like 25. I don't know. He ran a hacker loft down in San Diego. It was awesome. Um, and that's, this is a, not a story of my career, right? But it's like a story of my childhood. I was, this is my, my developmental years. I just grew up, uh, immersed in information security. Um, and I met a lot of, of interesting people along the way, a lot of influential people. And it's one of those industries where people were, back then people were so close. Everybody kind of knew each other because, it was a it was a niche thing. It wasn't a very lucrative industry, and everybody that was doing it was kind of breaking the law. You didn't have bug bounty programs back then. You had handcuffs, right? Yeah, I mean, it is so interesting to hear about your perspective when you were kind of first getting exposed to the culture. Um, you know, I want to know about what it was like as you transitioned from being like a technical maker into a manager 
What was that like for you? It was, you know, I remember it vividly, right? So I had a really awesome job working for some really awesome people at a company called uh, IAC, Interactive Corp. It was a subsidiary of that company. And I love my job, but I was, you know, I wanted to make more money. Who doesn't want more money, right? So I took this job at a different company, got an offer, and the community was pretty bad. And it, I'm lucky, you know, luckily things worked out the way they did, but it was for a substantial pay raise. And I flew to Dublin, Ireland for work. And I was over there and I got the offer and I had to start like two days after I got back. So I had to tell, you know, my boss at the time, I had to tell him I was quitting. So I emailed him, you know, in the middle of the night, his time. And I woke up that morning, the first email from him said, don't do anything yet. You know, we're going to work something out. And then, you know, the whole day had passed or whatever over there. So I, you know, very quickly read the next few emails and they were proposing to make me this offer to, to become a manager. It was the DevOps manager, or infrastructure manager, I think is what they call it. And I didn't want to do it. Um, I was hesitant. I'm like, why would I want to get into management? You know, like, I like technology. I don't want to be some pointy-haired idiot who's telling people what to do and doesn't know what he's talking about. I had this crazy misconception of what management was, what leadership was. And I talked to the Veep over there, and she told me, you know, you should give this a shot. Like, it's not what you think it is. It's a way for you to execute this vision that you've had while you've worked here um, by commanding troops in a way, right? Or, or by rallying them. And I was like, okay, you know what? Uh, the salary's cool. Uh, it's stable. I'll give it a shot. And so I'm in Ireland, right? And I have all this downtime and I'm trying to research what I'm supposed to do. And I remember very vividly, and I give this advice to a lot of people when they step into their first leadership or management position. Everything I read everywhere said, don't do anything. And I'm like, this is easy. <laughs> I don't have to do anything. And the reality of, of it is meant, you know, observe. And so that's what I did. I went back and I set up one-on-ones and did all of those simple mechanical things. And I started to, uh, you know, observe things from a different perspective, right? I tried to shed my former bias. And I was working on some projects at the time that, you know, were very beneficial to the company as a whole and were very beneficial to the team. But I was one dude working on them. And I realized really quickly when I realigned the priorities for my vision that it meant that I was able to accomplish the things that I couldn't accomplish alone, right? And that management wasn't about delegation necessarily, but more about collaboration, vision, execution, you know, performing the unperformable, right? And it didn't mean that I had to become rusty technically. Um, that's certainly a path that a lot of leaders go, but that I could focus on areas that I wanted to focus on and delegate to people who wanted to focus on the the disjoint set of things that I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. So I was really apprehensive. And when I started it, uh, I loved it. And it just kind of took off from there. Very cool. And what is your team focused on today? How would you describe your interaction with your team as a people manager, as a leader? So the team at Turnitin, uh, when I joined I joined Turnitin after a brief stint of retirement from uh, IAC. I was offered uh, either a severance or relocation over to Yonkers to work in the applications division. And I was, I found myself looking at these like 25 bedroom homes in Yonkers because the real estate was so much less expensive than over here. And I started thinking about this weird life where I don't know anybody in Yonkers and I live in this gigantic mansion that looks like it was owned by a former mafia boss. Uh, and I, I took the severance and I kind of retired for a bit. And so 
I was going nuts and I ran into my buddy, Steve Tan. Well, somebody I've worked with for a long time. And he asked me how I was doing. I said, I'm going crazy, man. Uh, there's nothing to do. Everybody works, it turns out. So you, you know, when you're sitting around all day, you can't call anybody up to hang out. Um, and furthermore, like we need to have challenge in our lives and we need to have stimulation. So he said, come work and turn it in. And I interviewed with my, the boss over there. It was, it was a DevOps manager role. And my former job was like deep of engineering and CISO. So I was like, it, it was a huge step down, but I did, wasn't doing it for the job. I was doing it for fun. So I, I met with this manager over there and they had so many problems. There was so much opportunity to do stuff. And this guy was like hell bent on fixing things. And he wanted to team up and, and fix them together. And so I met with the team and it was a very small team, uh, but they were really stellar people. And the company was comprised of really stellar people. So I joined the company. We murder it. Like we just, knocked it out of the park. We made huge improvements. We started growing the team. Um, despite my resistance, you know, some people like to build enterprises. I was at the stage of my career where I just wanted to operate effectively and not be showy about how big my organization was. And they still kept on consolidating more teams under our team. But what happened was we ended up with this really amazing DevOps team, right? And so later on, I transitioned into the CISO, but I didn't want to let go of DevOps. So now I'm doing both the DevOps stuff and, and then there's CISO. And we have a security team and we have a DevOps team. Well, the DevOps team is was shifted left and they were doing a lot of security for a while, but we've re recently started to get the dedicated security folks. So this really stellar team, this amazing DevOps team, they tackle this huge gamut of things, just this broad spectrum of monolith, on-premise data centers, you know, three public clouds, Google, Azure, um, and AWS. We have uh, Kubernetes environments that scale like crazy. They're more than 15,000 containers at peak. I mean, they can do anything, right? And uh, I've never had such a group of people that I enjoyed working with so much. It's really phenomenal. And then on the security end of things, we've taken Turnitin from a company that wasn't, you know, security was not their top priority, to say the least, as, as it is with most, most education technology. And we've decided that security is going to be one of our key differentiators. So security became one of the top priorities at Turnitin. And I started seeing security pop up on like, you know, emails from the CEO and these you know, security was a marketing thing. And all of a sudden we're acquiring all these companies. And, uh, I'm like, Oh shit. Uh, every C CISO wants to make security this huge priority and get this massive budget. They don't realize like, that just means a ton more work for them. Right. And it's, I'm kind of joking. The work is a blast, right? And the opportunity is great, but it, it's, it's kind of kicked into overdrive. And we, we are acquiring companies that need security programs built for them or that need security programs refreshed. And we're using our, you know, ingrown security, uh, culture and our ingrown security, uh, potential to make these companies better. So it's, it's kind of like an opportunity for acquisition. And it's been, you know, it's been a ride. The DevOps folks are, you know, the volume has turned up to 11. We're trying to hire security people as fast as we can. And I have got, I've got a phenomenal team, but there's so many things in flight. A better question would be, what aren't they working on? Very, very cool. Jack, tell me about these security team meetings that you hold at Turnitin. And talk to me about how you think about security culture at an organization. So security culture is key, right? Um, I, I met somebody, I, 
somebody told me a story about how they took a job as a CISO and they got up in front of everybody and they said, who here is responsible for security? And everybody raised their hand or something like that, right? Cool, whatever. It's, it sounds showy or, or flashy and it sounds, you know, we're all one team. But the reality is that a lot of companies hire a few security people and security is their problem. And security is super fun, right? It's fun to be diligent. It's fun to kind of play spy, right? You know, or fed and constantly be scrutinized and who's trying to break in. And when I joined uh, Turnitin, I used some domain expertise that I built from uh, the mergers and acquisition process at IAC. We would acquire companies and we'd have to kind of jumpstart that security culture. And so I joined Turnitin and I, I'm, I'm a, I have a weird look like a normal security dude. Most people think I'm like a security guard when I say I work in security. And so people are kind of like whispering, like, who's this new person, you know, who works security? And I'm, you know, sitting at my desk, you know, kind of quiet. And I'm orchestrating some of these campaigns, these PR campaigns for security to show them how much fun it is. Um, we did a phishing campaign. I love this phishing campaign. Um, I took a picture of the inside of the break room fridge. And I sent out an email that says, we've installed a webcam in the fridge to catch the food thieves. <laughs> the picture's like, the, I mean, who would install a webcam facing the inside of the fridge? And like, you know, the light goes off when you close the door. I mean, it's just so silly. And we, it always works. I get the best fish rate on this email, right? So one of the ways that I uh, introduced security and determined is I fished everybody with this ridiculous email. And they all came to me like, yeah, you got me. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I did another one where I sent out an email that said burglary 101 and I bought one of those little badge corners on Amazon for 20 bucks and waited for somebody to leave the badge unattended and we, you know, I showed the process of how badge cloning works just to show people how easy it was. And my IT team made a uh, funny video of someone dressed as the cat burglar breaking into the office and stealing laptops, which is a problem that we've actually had before my time at Turnitin. People have walked into the office and stolen laptops. Security is really important to turn it in. We've had, you know, death threats called to the uh, the office because of people don't do aren't doing well in school or they get called out for uh, plagiarism, and they, you know they blame the platform, right? So there's there's that aspect of security that's a concern, and we have to protect a lot of student data. We have 1.3 billion submissions, and when I got to turn it in, a lot of people were like, "Ah, oh, it's just essays," and I was like, well, "It is essays, but I wouldn't want the personal details of my essays to be exposed." And we also have corporate clients, and there's other risks associated with our data. So I think that the priority for data privacy and security is pretty high. And um, we didn't have a security team at Turnitin. We still barely have one. We're leveraging people from all over the company. But we do have uh, dedicated employees now. And I wanted to do a team meeting where we could talk about fun things. And so I, I fired up the InfoSec monthly. And it's like Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or something. Not a fun time. And the the... Email invite says attendance not required, or like something where it's it's actually like discouraging people to come to the meeting. Maybe it's reverse psychology. And sometimes we'll have eighty or hundred people join these meetings. And the company is, uh, you know, just just over a thousand folks right now. But even when we were small, when we were four hundred folks, we'd get fifty people attending this meeting, and we talk about interesting topics. We talk about cool stuff that's going on at Turnitin, but we also talk about cool stuff that's going on in the industry, and. I give people, you know, the inside analysis on highly hyped vulnerabilities. Like, uh, I can't think of any of them right now. Man, they do so such a good job uh, branding and trademarking security vulnerabilities nowadays. I can't remember him. Heartbleed was one of them, right? Like, that's the kind of stuff we would discuss. And so we have these. Sorry. Go ahead. 
they have these awesome security team meetings, and what happens is everybody's constantly prioritizing security. And I, I do onboarding presentations that are kind of fun where I go over some basic security techniques and I talk about how I myself have been personally fished and how I've fished myself by accident once. And I try and you know, demonstrate that security is something that we all become weak on or we all get affected by in a negative way at some point. And if your CISO is getting fished, it's, you, know, you shouldn't feel any shame in reporting getting fished to your CISO. And that's the damn truth, right? So this culture of security has grown so much that everybody's thinking security. People are scrutinizing emails. I get people reaching out to me all the time to talk about interesting security things. And security has become a really awesome priority at Turnitin. It, it's nice because you know, I took this job uh, because it's a great company and a great team and it's a feel-good position. And security is something very important for data everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's a social network, if it's academic data. This medical data, it's something that we need to prioritize as an industry. So it's nice seeing the priority and culture for security to be shifted in a positive way, not just for one company, but for the industry in general. That is really cool. You know, I think that one of the buzzwords I've heard a lot over the past handful of years is, you know, you've got DevOps and then you've got maybe DevSecOps. Some folks would go so far as to say sec DevOps. You know, from what I'm hearing, Jack, it sounds like your DevOps teams are actually genuinely interested in security. Do you have any advice for our listeners in terms of how to cultivate that? Um, I, I wonder, I wonder if it turn it in perhaps prior to your arrival or, or right when you showed up, you mentioned like maybe security wasn't the highest priority. I, I'm just curious because I feel like a lot of security folks are trying to figure out how do we get in good with these DevOps people? Yeah. And I feel like maybe you have some advice. Yeah, that's one area that I have a unique perspective on because I've always done ops and security at minimum, right? Uh, another, I've done data science and some other stuff too in, in leadership positions. But uh, the the first piece of advice is don't use the term DevSecOps. And I started using that. And my DevOps team rolled their eyes so hard that uh, a couple of them lost their vision permanently. It was bad. I mean, they, they hate that term. And shift left, whenever I use that, I can like hear audible groans. Um, but the reality is that DevOps people are very security-minded but they don't like to be told what to do because they're the people that are being woken up in the middle of the night when there's a problem, right? And so one of the things that I do a lot in the industry is I talk to companies about their DevOps deployment model, right? And a lot of companies will come to me and say, hey, you know, well, we're, we're partnering with Chef to write modules and we're going to you know, make the deployment easier. That's not, that's not why DevOps people groan about de deploying a security agent. Right. Uh, it's not that it's hard for them to do. The problem is that the DevOps people don't want that security agent to cause issues. And uh, I have a, a story about my DevOps team when they blamed one of my agents, my security agents, uh, for causing performance problems on the greater greater clusters of machines at every machine. And the company, uh, their CSM stepped up and like had their tech team log in and prove that it was actually a different company's agent, not a security company, but a DevOps tool that uh, was malfunctioning and causing problems. So, so how do you get your DevOps team to to deploy your 
your stuff, right? Well, the first approach is to try and use agentless things, right? Try and use things that don't, it's not that they're difficult to deploy, it's that they're intrusive, right? And involve your DevOps team in the decision-making process. Give them a sense of ownership. Allow them to ask the questions during the POC. DevOps people are mostly security people. Like security people come from DevOps typically. Um, there's a ton of different areas of security spe specializations, but uh, the generalists are generally DevOps folks. So give them the opportunity to demonstrate their interest in security and give them the opportunity to contribute. And they'll take a sense of ownership and they'll apply it to being easier to work with when you're trying to roll out your, your tool. Um, the DevOps team at Turnitin manage a ton of security tools. I'm, uh, I've partnered with a company called righthand.ai. Uh, I, I do this thing at RSA where I ask people to pitch me their startups and I like to, you know, find the really early stage startups with really sharp leadership and give them a POC and see if they work out. And so this security awareness company, uh, startup popped up and we partnered with them and I have my DevOps team you know, giving them feedback on how to operate their systems and how to integrate with Active Directory, that sort of thing. And the DevOps team is all, they all build the phishing campaigns that are sent out to that software. So giving them that, that ownership and security, it not only does it make them feel good and, and make them interested in security, so long as it's stuff that they like to do, right? But it also makes the work accomplished, <laughs> right? I can delegate other things to the security professionals. Very cool. Thank you for that. Jack, the other thing that I think folks would love to hear a bit more about, you know, to the extent that you can share your experiences with us is about the M&A piece. So, you know, one of the things that I think is super interesting about information security these days is it's none of our organizations by ourselves, you know, on an island. Um, every software company buys the products and the services of other software companies. Certainly when you're in an M&A situation, the security posture of the organization you're looking to acquire becomes the security posture of your organization. How do you think about that? That's, that's very well put, right? When No matter what you're doing when you acquire a company, if you're going to operate that company autonomously, uh, if your plan is to sunset the company Generally, there's no guarantee and there's actually quite a likelihood um, that some integration is going to happen, right? Somebody will identify some synergy that just makes such perfect sense that the next thing you know, you have one network able to have privileged communication with the other. And th that means that security needs to be vetted uh, for the acquisition process, regardless of the, the mission, you know, post hoc. So... Vetting the security of potential acquisition targets is, is a difficult thing because a lot of overzealous people, when they start doing this, they, they want to ask a lot of specific questions and dig into the architectural details. They kind of get technically focused or they put the blinders on to their area of expertise. Um, and also, it's not something you can just run in and drop a bunch of kit in and have, you know, audit their, this, the potential acquisition targets systems because that's intrusive. Uh, generally, it's, it's, that sort of thing is very frowned upon in the emergency acquisition process. Um, it's asking a lot. So I take a, you know, I've been doing this for quite a while and we've done it for a lot of companies and turn it in, started to get an M&A a bit. And so when I jumped into the, the process, uh, my procedure is very simple. I have 14 questions uh, that cover security and compliance. And the 14 questions 
Um, two of the questions are catch-alls. Anything I missed in compliance and anything I missed in security or anything else you want to give me? And the other questions uh, ask for anything, any evidence documentation related to a particular area of security or compliance. So in compliance, I'd say, do you have any uh, third-party audit firms that have assessed you in the last several years and given you some sort of certification of security, availability, privacy, consistency, things like that? And I, what I'm doing is putting the onus on the acquired target to prove to me that they are secure and giving them, as, you know, very little guidance, but enough guidance so that they, they don't just go, what do I, what do I dump in the document request lagoon, right? Uh, it's, a, it's really a, a good way to do it because a lot of times they will provide things to me that I would not have anticipated and wouldn't have been able to ask a tactical question about. And sometimes when I see other people vet various areas of a business, they have these tactical blinders on them and they'll miss a great deal of scope of attestation or they'll miss a big red flag, right? Um, if you give people the liberty to contribute things themselves, you are eliminating the, the likelihood that they're going to contradict themselves, but you can go subsequently after reviewing the documents and ask more tactical follow-up questions. If you ask what security tooling they have deployed and they list a few things, then you can go in and start asking questions about how they're using it and give them that pressure to contradict themselves or to expose a red flag. But in, in general, um, I think security is one of the more important parts of the acquisition process because it can substantially affect the value of the target that's being acquired. It's very indicative of risk, and the whole purpose of the due diligence process in M&A really is to identify risk, right? Uh, so it makes sense for security to be one of the more commonly included verticals to assess and also one of the things to start to assess more at inception. Very cool. Thank you so much. Jack, um, a couple of last questions um, as we're coming near the end of our time. Uh, so first, one for fun. I understand that you speak Russian and Serbian despite not having any Russian or Serbian heritage. Um, as a person who only speaks one language, which is English, um, I have tremendous respect for folks who are multilingual, uh, and I'm curious as to why. It's a weird story. Uh, so in order to graduate from the, the UC system, you're supposed to be bilingual, but that requirement is, is pretty light, right? You don't have to actually prove that you can speak conversationally. Yeah, I got to take a language. And so I, uh, you know, normally people would take Spanish or something. My parents spent half the year in Mexico, so you think I would have learned that. I can speak a little Spanish, but my, uh, I was dating a person at the time who was from uh, Belgrade and Serbia, and she spoke Serbian, and she thought it would be easy to take Russian. And I liked the challenge, and I, we, she and I were competing to see who could complete the most units per semester at the community college. And so I, I started taking Russian, and I was like, this language is really interesting. Um, it's very, uh, like black and white, um, in the textbooks and it's very colorful in, in spoken practice. Um, so I studied Russian for like four years and I still can barely understand it when people speak Russian to me, but I can read and write pretty decently and I, I can write faster in Russian cursive than I can write in English. Uh, because Russian <laughs> it's like, you just don't have to lift your pen as much or something. <laughs> It's a cool language. And then Serbian uh, is kind of similar to Russian. And my, my ex-wife spoke Serbian to her family a lot. So I picked up on a bunch of that. 
And uh, I've been to former Yugoslavia, you know, the modern countries now like Bosnia, uh, Montenegro, and uh, Serbia. I've been to Kosovo. Uh, I went to Albania by accident, but uh, cool. it, not very well. <laughs> very cool. Uh, Jack, actual final question for you. Um, perhaps for many folks in security, CISO is sort of like the goal. Uh, you are a CISO. What is next for you? Oh man, I kind of want to get my, uh, I want to pass the bar exam. Cool. I, I know some people that have like, you know, studied law and not gone to school, right? But just done it on their own and passed the bar. I think that'd be a pretty cool challenge. But career wise, uh, I don't know. I don't, I'm kind of like where I'm at. Uh, I've kind of always said that though. Um, it's, the being a CISO is, there's a lot of room for growth by moving to different companies and taking on more responsibility, but Turnitin offers me a great deal of responsibility without the bureaucracy and red tape, which I really like. Um, there's certainly an opportunity to bounce around. A lot of CISOs have an average tenure of uh, 2.4 years or so, I think, at a company, which is just long enough to build up a, a security program and then abandon it while it fails miserably. Uh, it's not enough time to actually prove the execution of your planning. So I'm, I'm a, I like to stay at companies a little longer and actually, you know, feel the pain of the, the, the systems that I've implemented. So I'll probably stick around trying to for a while so long as they pay me enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've, there have been times where I've thought about changing careers. Uh, when I was in college, a, a few chemistry teachers tried to convince me to change my major and I almost did. Uh, that I remembered how lucrative that what I do is and how it's like what I eat, breathe, and sleep. And I came to my senses and didn't do that. But I always kind of think, you know, what would happen if I had gone the chemistry route instead? And, you know, I, I want, like everybody, I want to continue this lifelong pursuit of education. I work for an education company, but it's, uh, it takes a lot to get the motivation to get over that hump and actually do it. Very cool. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing your stories and your thoughts. Pleasure's mine. I had a blast. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.